I don't think that's how it works. Has this guy never done day drinking? Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch, the show where you all look wonderful tonight. (laughs) (laughs) You took so long to figure that out. I'm like a little... That was me not figuring it out. If you gave me time, I would have done something different. (laughs) Instead, that's what you get. (laughs) Who are you? I'm Lindsay Tucker. I'm Aviv Rubenstein. Oh, hi, Aviv. Hi. What is this show? This show is called Lyrics for Lunch. It's the show where we tell you everything you never wanted to know about all the songs you never wanted to know yeah really it's where we ruin your favorite songs for you we didn't we (laughs) didn't set out to do this but this is what we're doing (laughs) we didn't ask for this job but here we are (laughs) how are you this week Lindsay? i'm doing fine um it's friday uh that seems kind of like a trend for us recently we just started uh doing friday uh recording and that's good great you know that we recorded last week on a thursday right well the one that we just listened to said like we had that friday feeling are you sure it wasn't yeah, a friday positive i think you're wrong well whatever <laughs> um i'm doing great thanks for asking didn't i Mm-mm. did i not Mm-mm. well you just looked great so i just assumed i looked wonderful today <laughs> so what are we talking about this week Lindsay? This week, we're talking about more Eric Clapton being a horrible person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's under the guise of the song Wonderful Tonight. I never really know if you're actually going to take the song seriously or just take us on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. I always take the song seriously. <laughs> Are you sure? There might be a little bit of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at the end of this episode. <laughs> um, yeah, so All we're right. continuing the saga of Eric Clapton and Patty Boyd. Um, last week was part two of our Layla episode. Can you catch us up to what exactly, where where did we leave off in, their st- in everyone's story? If you're new here to this installment of Lyrics for Lunch, then here's what you missed. Patty Boyd was 19 years old, I believe, when she met George Harrison on the set of A Hard Day's Night. And she was a model and she was just starting to dip her toe in some small acting gigs. She later became a photographer. She, George asked her out on set that day. She had a boyfriend, but she broke up with him so she could hang out with George. They went out to dinner with Brian Epstein and then they got married uh, in January in a very small ceremony. She wore a pink dress and then... They took off on their life together. Uh, They went to India. Then George got depressed, started withdrawing from her, wanted to fuck other people. Eric started, uh, Eric Clapton was George's best friend and was kind of always around in different music projects and started seducing her and sending her weird letters. And Mm -hmm. um, he stole her away. He had a nickname for her. What What was his nickname for her? His nickname for her was Layla. Oof oof.com you guys <laughs> and so so we so we left off right as she left george for eric correct 
She left George for Eric, and there was a murder. Yes, yeah, so tell us about Jim Gordon and the murder. <laughs> so Jim Gordon is usually credited with the piano riff that's at the end of Layla. It's like when the song switches halfway through to become a completely different song. That song was actually a song called Time that he wrote with his girlfriend, Liza Minnelli. Rita Coolidge. (laughs) Rita Coolidge. And uh, yeah, so he stole that from her, gave it to Eric or Derek and the Dominoes. And then he uh, was, I think he had schizophrenia. He had Mm -hmm. some kind of undiagnosed uh, mental illness that eventually led him to, um, besides self-medicating, he murdered his own mother, who was one of the most terrifying voices in his head that was always like belittling him and telling him to whatever yes so before we get into this week's episode we have a little bit of twitter feedback this is from at holy roman candle on twitter who is my friend matthew he says call me old-fashioned but i've always hated eric clapton because his music sucks (laughs) okay to which our other friend billy (laughs) chimes in the second half of layla is the worst thing jim gordon ever did oh and that's saying something and that's saying something so today tonight we're going to be talking about the other, other Eric Clapton, Patty Boyd, Muse, collab, Wonderful Tonight. So the, the sources are all from Patty's book, Wonderful Tonight, um, except when otherwise noted. So according to Patty, Eric's mother, Eric's mother, Pat, gave birth to him when she was 16 after a wartime affair with a Canadian. No, no, wing. start over. I'm sorry. I love you, but no. You need to bring us in. Like, she left Eric and went with him on tour in America, Mm -mm. and then. No. And then. No. And then. Mm -mm. (laughs) That's not where we're starting with this story. God damn it. We're going to start with his birth. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Eric's mother, Pat, gave birth to him when she was 16 after a wartime affair with a Canadian wing commander named Edward Fryer. A Canadian wing commander named Edward Fryer. So this is in England. Yeah. So he was stationed in England, had sex with Pat, who is Eric's mom. And yeah, right. And Eric's middle name is Pat as well. Patrick. There's lots, lots of Patties and Patricias in this story. But then Edward Fryer just like fucked back off to Canada after the war was over and like didn't want to raise Eric. Okay. So back then... Having an illegitimate son was not acceptable. So Pat remarried this guy, Frank McDonald, but he made her choose. He's like, you can marry me, but you have to disavow your son. What? That defeats the whole purpose of marrying someone to uncover, undo your bastard child. That's not why she married the guy. She just married him to marry him. Oh. So she remarries the guy and she leaves Eric with his grandparents, who, according to Patty, like doted on him. Spoiled How old him. was he? So pretty young because Eric was brought up believing that his mother, Pat, was actually his older sister. Oh, my God. I do remember this vaguely. I knew this. This is so weird. Eric found out the truth when he was nine years old and he was fucking furious. Reasonably so. I mean, I don't often use the words reasonable with Eric with what I know, but Jesus fucking Christ. Right? So this is a quote from Patty. And I think that anger was always inside of him, coloring his relationships with women. He never trusted them, and he couldn't understand having platonic friendships with a woman. 
by the time Eric tracked down his biological father, the father was dead. Oh, sad. Yeah. So because he was a little kid with no parents and anger issues, his grandparents kind of spoiled him. He got a guitar when he was 13. And this like was the way that he could finally express himself. Right. And sure. Guitar God Eric Clapton was born at age 12, 13. Now we jump forward to 1974. 1974 good evening we hope you all enjoyed yourself and we'll see you all again in 1974 do do you know what i'm doing i do <laughs> but like blue jean baby i don't really know why <laughs> because that's how my brain works yes so yeah, no the, comment. The, where, Moving the, on. The, the place where you were yelling at me to start, now we're back to it. Okay. Patty has left George for Eric in 1974, and this is from Patty's book. What I had felt for George was a deep love. What Eric and I had was an intoxicating, overpowering passion. It was so intense, so urgent, so heady. I felt almost out of control. Having made the decision to leave my marriage, I knew I had to be with him, go everywhere with him, do everything he did, keep up with him in every way, which on that tour of America in 1974 meant drinking. I had never been allowed to go on tour with George, so I had no idea what to expect. But standing at the side of the stage night after night, amplifiers booming, lights up, music exploding in my head and vibrating through every part of me was an incredible sensation. Deeply sexy. Hot. Incredible. I mean, it it's pretty. It's it's sexy, right? Like like being on a rock and roll tour is is there's like a, an excitement to it. So Patty's on tour with eric and she's meeting people like stevie wonder and elvis and she's a little starstruck which is weird considering she was married to a beetle and she had like met elvis before and in the book she's like elvis looked like shit um, okay <laughs> but it's it seemed like george never let her on tour so she, so finally she's like living up to all the things that she's like been owed maybe by being married to a beetle right all her penny lane dreams are coming true exactly and the tour was grueling. It was 26 shows coast to coast and, of course, partying every night. And Eric, I don't think I need to remind you, is a raging alcoholic and a recovering heroin addict. Yes, mm -hmm, indeed. So once again, this is Patty. He coped by drinking himself close to oblivion. He began in the morning and drank all day until four o'clock when Roger, his manager, made him stop temporarily. At that time, Roger was working for Robert Stigwood, the guy who hired goons to hang the other guy out the building sticky oh god right but eventually roger became eric's manager full-time he reckoned that if he could stop eric's drinking at four he had enough time to sober him up and shout with showers and coffee before he had to play after that he it works has this guy never done day drinking <laughs> well let's see how it works for roger <laughs> After that, he made sure that Eric only had cold tea and 7-Up to drink. Eric's normal poison was Cavassier and 7-Up, which oh. looked much the same as cold tea. And by that stage in the day, he couldn't tell the difference. The plan didn't always work. There were times on tour where Eric was so drunk on stage that he played lying flat on his back or staggering around wearing the weirdest combination of clothes that somehow looked stylish. Oh, wow. Okay. One night... On a later tour in Australia, Roger got cross with Eric. I found them with a couple strippers in our hotel suite in Adelaide. 
A man on the street opposite had been touting for trade, and Eric had shouted from the balcony, send two up here, will you? So I think touting for trade is is kind of like offering women, potentially. Okay. I don't know. Sounds don't like it. it. Right. So Patty walked in to find Roger and him lying on the bed watching the strippers, and Patty went berserk. Quote, how could they exploit women in this way? Eric said he couldn't agree more that it had been Roger's idea and Roger took the flack. Okay. So so Roger's covering for Eric all the time. Right. But That's at his the next job. gig, yes. At the next gig, Roger exacted his revenge. Instead of mixing seven up with the cold tea, he mixed it he mixed it with malt vinegar. Ew. And he he could barely contain his delight as Eric took the first gulp on stage, uttered a strangled scream, and spat it all over the roadie who was standing in the wings with a bucket. Okay, so mm, probably many listeners have a similar experience to this, what I'm about to describe. When I was a freshman in college, you know, you have like your mini fridge, you have your mini fridge with your microwave attached, Uh and you stock it full of water, booze, maybe some grapes, as one does. And I woke up like wicked hungover and thirsty as shit. And I like Mm-mm. get this bottle of Poland Springs, crack it open, nope. chug, chug, chug. Three gulps were already down before I spit it, spewed it everywhere because it was straight vodka that Colleen, my roommate, had put in a fucking Poland Spring bottle. Colleen. <laughs> what are you doing, Colleen? The fuck are you doing? Oh my God, it was so gross. I'm getting a stomachache thinking about that right now. <laughs> Uh, this will not be the last stomachache you get during this episode. Great, great. Carry on. So Patty goes back to England after the tour and calls up George to tell her to tell him that she's coming by to get the rest of her stuff. Cause she just fucking left. Okay, another side, another aside. Uh, when <laughs> I was in high school, me and my friends used to like love doing prank phone calls. It was literally our favorite thing to do, like call the guys that we're friends with and do these weird pranks. And we would download these like weird sounds off the internet or like Napster. And there was one that was like this. Goodbye, George. We'll all miss you. And I've got a hole in me heart. And like, I have no idea what it's from. I've Googled it. (laughs) I think it's the Beatles. (laughs) But I don't know. So when you're saying she left George, all I can think of is, Goodbye, George. We'll all miss you. (laughs) This is what happens when you don't ask Lindsay what her personal connection with the song is. (laughs) Just flails about. Okay. Okay. Yes. I hope you learned your lesson. When she comes, when she comes by the house, quote, George was there and he was very sweet, but looked so sad. I felt so guilty and wondered whether I had done the right thing. Spoilers. You didn't. You didn't. And in the book, she talks about like all the memories of good times that she had. And according to Patty, her cat Rupert like appears and jumps into her arm. And George is like, that cat disappeared the day you left. I don't buy any of that shit, though. Because Aviv's just a knee jerk naysayer about everything cool. Knee jerk naysayer about everything cool, including Rupert. (laughs) The cat. So. Back to the book. That Christmas, we had turkey, and as we were sitting down to it at Hurtwood Edge, which is uh, Eric's Eric's like castle or whatever, George burst in uninvited. He was horrified to see me eating meat and berated me, but then we laughed, and he had some Christmas pudding with us and some wine, and it wasn't awkward at all. I couldn't believe how friendly he and Eric were to each other. He'd come over to see what we were up to, and the sad thing was, I realized later, he wasn't doing anything on Christmas Day, and he must have been lonely. Oh, stomach hurt. Yeah. It ain't it ain't good. Oh, George. Oh, George. 
So a little bit more about the Eric and Roger relationship. Quote Patty, Eric wouldn't move unless Roger approved. Theirs was another father and son relationship, much like the Beatles and Brian Epstein. Mm -hmm. All of those musicians were like little boys in long trousers. Eric was charming to everyone and had agreed to everything. He never had he never had to display negativity because he didn't like because if, if he didn't like a situation he'd got himself into roger would deal with it if someone asked him to play on their record he would say yes and then ring roger and say get me out of it eric mm-hmm. never did anything for himself he didn't even take his own driving test he got someone who looked vaguely like him to sit for the driving test no for him no way remember this this comes back so when he gets the test then they take his picture and it's not him but this is the 70s, so they no didn't do the pictures. No pictures on your license. Okay. When did they start he doing ne- pictures on the license? I think later. I mean, okay. obviously later. I don't know when, though. Okay. He never had to fill his cars with, with gas, pay taxes on them, or insure them. Someone else did it. He never paid any bills. They all went into a drawer, and someone from the office would collect them. One day, this is Patty, one day I found a check for 5,000 pounds in a drawer and said, I'm going to London. Shall I take this check up to the office so they can bank it for you? And Eric said, no, don't touch it. And she asked why. And, she, and he said, I've got the check. That's good enough. On another occasion, someone sent Roger a large check. And when it didn't arrive, he discovered that it had been dispatched to Hurtwood Edge, the, the manor. He asked if Eric had seen it. And Eric said, I've had it for ages. I put it in the drawer. Roger asked why. And Eric said, I'm not giving it to the bloody bank. He had no idea about money or banking or anything, not even royalties. He just wasn't interested. Every week, Roger's bookkeeper, Gladys, would give Eric his allowance of 200 pounds. Eric called it his wages, which were just pocket mo- which was pocket money for cigarettes and for drinks. Restaurant bills went straight to the office, and they had accounts at various shops and wine merchants and butchers. So it's like he, he does not understand money at all. He's like Rain Man. Whoa, Aviv. Uh, offensive. Is it? Yes. No, there's like a scene in Rain Man where he doesn't understand money. Still. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> in April of 1975, it was advised that Eric Clapton leave the country for a year to avoid some tax problems. Advised by who? Roger? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So they lived on a bo- on an island in the Bahamas for a year just to like dodge taxes. Amazing. And they while they're there they're entertaining people like the Rolling Stones and their wives and screenwriters and directors and all kinds of things. By the way, Patty's mother hated Eric. She really liked George because George was nice to her and all her kids, Patty, Paula, their sister Jenny and their brothers. But according to Patty, quote, Eric didn't even like me talking to them or my friends on the telephone. He wanted me all to himself. Yeah, see, that's a red flag. It doesn't mean he likes you a lot. It means he's psycho. Yep, it certainly does. (laughs) So now I think it's time to talk about the song of the song of the episode. Wonderful tonight. Ladies, don't let your man's psychosis trick you into thinking it's flattery. Don't confuse your man's psychosis with flattery. That's how I'm setting up wonderful tonight. Let's do it. Okay. So what is your history with this song, Wonderful Tonight? (laughs) I don't have a deep history with this song. I remember it from when I was a kid. I didn't like it. I didn't like any Eric Clapton songs. Like, I didn't know the, like, original Layla. 
Like I mm-hmm. knew the unplugged one because that was the on the radio version. when we were kids. I didn't like it at all. And I just don't think I cared for Erickson music. This song was like really a downer. And so was obviously uh, the window one. The window. She came in <laughs> through the bathroom window. <laughs> don't confuse No spoilers. Them. <laughs> no spoilers. Um, so I did like this song when I was in high school. I thought it was like a cool, sad love song. And I don't like it anymore. And then I read the book. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's take a listen to Wonderful Tonight. I think I could just feel his bad aura coming through the radio waves. Potentially, potentially. The the like riff on this is so sleepy that I like really liked it. I like the organ on it. And yeah, I think it's like a competently written song that I kind of over overplayed myself. I just can't even imagine like little Aviv listening to the song like emo. All your little oh, emos yeah. coming out. Oh, so many emos. <laughs> Like, you'd never have a song with a guy asking if he looks all right and then getting this validation. That is one of the least sexist things about Eric
So I would like to do a dramatic reading of the lyrics just because the next little section that we're talking about is all about the lyrics to Wonderful Tonight and what they mean. Okay. So would you take the first verse? Mm-hmm. It's late in the evening. She's wondering what clothes to wear. She puts on her makeup and brushes her long blonde hair. And then she asks me, do I look all right? And I say, yes, you look wonderful tonight. We go to a party and everyone turns to see this beautiful lady that's walking around with me. And then she asks me, do you feel all right? And I say, yes, I feel wonderful tonight. I feel wonderful because I see the love light in your eyes. And the wonder of it all is that you just don't realize how much I love you. It's time to go home now and I've got an aching head. So I give her the car keys and she helps me to bed. And then I tell her, as I turn out the light, I say, my darling, you were wonderful tonight. Okay, so... I'm not going to ask you what you think the song is about because you've read the book and mm-hmm. you know that this is a Patty Boyd episode. Mm-hmm. So I, I turned to lyrics inter- lyricinterpretations.com, which is a real website. Oh, goody. And they rank the interpretations of the, the, best, the best lyrical interpretations of the song. So we're going to read the top three. Ooh. So number, these, these are all posted anonymously, but number one, the best, most popular lyrical interpretation is from March 14th, March 14th, 2011, and it says, quote, every time I hear this, this is how I interpret it. This guy is secretly gay and in his private life dresses as a woman. Two different things, bro. And tonight he's, quote, coming out at his work social." So this is like a very mid 2000s like he and the girl are the same person. <laughs> the Shyamalan twist. The Shyamalan twist. So the number 2 most popular best voted lyrical interpretation is from January 1st, 2010. And this one is quote this saw uh, I I'm going to use some words there's some words in this in this episode that are salty and they're always said with like a million scare quotes around them quote this song this is clearly sung from the point of view of a little crippled fella oh my god at the start he's sat in his wheelchair watching his wife get ready and waiting for her to do her hair and get him dressed and then quote we go to a party and everyone turns to see this beautiful lady is walking around with me and then she asks me do you feel all right and i say i feel wonderful tonight this is about his wife pushing him to the party and everyone's staring at him because he's in a wheelchair oh my god this is horrible she asks him if he's upset by the people looking at him but he isn't because he's in love with her so it's worth going out with her and that quote So I give her the car keys and she helps me to bed. Obviously, he can't drive because his legs don't work and she lifts him into bed when they get home. He says again that he doesn't mind being, quote, crippled because he loves the woman and it makes it okay. Um. Uh Uh-huh. What's wrong? This feels like ableism. I feel like we're perpetuating ableism right now. Well, I mean, are we giving credence to this interpretation? No. This is fucking insane. And I've seen, <laughs> I saw this on the internet in multiple places where they're like, I heard it's about a guy in a wheelchair. Like, fucking what? This, oh is, the, this is the least cryptic song that's ever existed. Exactly. So the number three top voted answer is from February 17th, 2006. 
and it says, quote, although the song has been widely viewed as a love song for obvious reasons, Clapton says that it's actually a sarcastic look at how long his then wife Patty took to get ready to go out. Ding, ding, ding. What do we give this on a scale of one to ten? 9.5. 9.5. They weren't married yet. <laughs> so this is from Patty's book, September 6th, 1976. One night, unusually, Eric and I were going out, but I couldn't decide what to wear. I was taking a very long time to do my makeup and hair, putting on one dress and then another and then another, throwing them all down into a pile on the floor. Poor Eric had been ready for hours and he was waiting patiently. He was so sweet, at least in the early days. Poor Eric. The worst he would say if I annoyed him was, you're a silly clown. Mm, That doesn't feel good. (laughs) <laughs> no, it doesn't. While he waited for me, he was in the sitting room filling his fiddling with his guitar. He went through phases in his listening to music. And at the time, he was listening to a country singer named Don Williams. And we talked about how beautifully simple his lyrics were, each song telling a story about everyday happenings. Eric had been thinking of writing something similar and had already worked on some music for it. Suddenly, as I was flinging dresses on and off, inspiration struck. When I finally got downstairs and asked the inevitable question, do I look all right? He played me what he had written. It's late in the evening. She's wondering what clothes to wear. She puts on her makeup and brushes her long blonde hair. And then she asks me, do I look all right? And I say, yes, you look wonderful tonight. Boo. Boo indeed. They were (laughs) heading out to a Buddy Holly tribute concert that Paul McCartney had arranged. Ooh, I look just like Buddy Holly. And so this is a Patty quote. You never backed me up on my songs. Oh, oh. (laughs) I was taking so long and I was panicking about my hair, my clothes, everything. I came downstairs expecting him to really berate me. But he said, listen to this. Woohoo. Yeah. I, I was expecting to get verbally abused, but it turns out just manipulated with music again. Yeah. And so this is from <laughs> medium.com, but he was really irritated about having to wait on her forever while he spun it into a song of patient reverence. And this no doubt is how he preser- presented it to his wife. It's actually totally sarcastic. Yes, dear. You look wonderful tonight. Can we fucking go now? Indeed. Indubitably. Fuck you, Eric. uh, This is Patty's quote. It was such a simple song, so beautiful, and for years it tore at me. Ew, why? To have inspired Eric and George before him to write music so flattering, yet I came to believe that although something about me may have made them put pen to paper, it was really all about them. Duh. How many therapy sessions did it take you to get there? I, I mean, probably many. So, Wonderful Tonight is released in 1976. It, or I'm sorry, 1977. It wasn't a huge hit. It, in the UK, it peaked at 81. So, Wonderful Tonight holds the distinction of being the most issued song by Clapton, which means like it was released on the most number of records. It's on five Clapton albums Slow Hand, which is 77, Timepieces, Backtracking, Crossroads, The Cream of Eric Clapton, which is like a best of, and different live versions of the song appear on Just One Night, 24 Nights, Crossroads to the Live in the 70s, Superstars in Concert, Blues, Saturday Night Live 25, Volume 1, One More Car, One More Rider, and Wonderful Tonight was included in the benefit for the Crossroads Center at Antigua in 1999. So that's 13 different 
issues of, of versions of this song. Wow. Yeah. It was re-released in 1991 as a live version, and it wasn't on the record that we talked about, the MTV Unplugged record, but it was like a different live record that he put out, which is why we got confused last week. Mm -hmm. But even then, it only reached number 30. In the US, it peaked at 16. So it was a hit. It was like one of his famous hits. Billboard magazine described Wonderful Tonight as perhaps Clapton's prettiest and mellowest love ballad. So... Let's take a little a little detour from the Eric and Patty story for a second. Let's. Back to lyricsinterpretation.com. Okay. Bur- buried in the stacks of lyric lyricinterpretations.com. This is from October 13th, 2018. So not that long ago. It says, quote, Eric Clapton was not the first to sing Wonderful Tonight, nor did he write it. It was first recorded by Nino and the Ebb Ties in 1957. Please let this be true. <laughs> So I clearly am not not going to look that up, right? <laughs> Eric Clapton is a fraud and all of his music is stolen. So what, what would you say if I told you that there is a different version of Wonderful Tonight by a band that broke up in 1957? I would say this sounds like the work of a guy who thought his mother was his sister. Yeah. So let's take a <laughs> listen to Wonderful Tonight by Nino and the Ebb Ties. Ed, oh, Ebb Tides. Oh my god, okay. Oh, 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 the guy on the left is kind of hot. <laughs> He's got a good jaw. He does. Oh my god. Oh my god, I'm dying. Oh my god, Aviv. <laughs> yes. What? Have we verified the release date of this? I'm taking you on a journey here, Lindsay. I mean, I feel like if he was going to steal it, he would have changed some of the words. This is word uh-huh. for word. So... So what what are you thinking now? They're they're covering it. But they broke up in 1965. He wrote. So, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Right. I got nothing. They had a reunion tour and they recovered the song. So, I did some research because there are people in the YouTube comments being like what the fuck is like this is an Eric Clapton song no this is a Nino and the Ebb Tides song how is it possible because Nino and the Ebb Tides like broke up in 1965 so and and so this was featured on an album called Golden Oldies but Goodies which is supposedly Nino and the Ebb Tides music from 56 to 65 okay so I actually had to go into like the the Wikipedia source code, like for the rejected citations, you can look up rejected citations on Wikipedia because there's no evidence. Like I couldn't find any information other than this YouTube link and an Amazon Music thing that said, you know, golden oldies from the but goodies, 1956 to 1965, and so, but it was wasn't released in 65. It was released later. So this is from 
the Wikipedia moderator that rejected the citation that Nino and the Ebb Tides re- recorded the song in 57. Quote, yes, Nino and the Ebb Tides is a group formed in 56. Yes, they recorded a cover of the song. Yes, they disbanded in 1965. Yes, Clapton's recording was released in 77. However, every source credits Clapton as a songwriter. Clapton says he wrote it. Patty Boyd says he wrote it. ASCAP says he wrote it. That should be enough to raise the question of when did Nino and the Ebb Tides record their version? The only places that their versions are available are from the 90s and 2000s. It doesn't appear on anything that they released from the 50s or 60s. The group also reunited in the 70s and 80s as a part of various rock revival shows. So, according to Discogs, which is like a musical uh, music documenting app, this version was recorded in 1995. But various clips on YouTube give the year 56, 99, 95, 2013. But this was the recorded version in the 90s by a reformed uh, edition of the group featuring Tony Imbimbino. Artie Russ from The Devotions, George Rivera from The Copas, and Willie Mendez from The Paramounts. The only reliable source that anyone could find was an all-music review of the compilation, Nino and the Ebb Tides, Those Oldies But Goodies Anthology, and that was released in 99. While the inclusion of Wonderful Tonight would seem to imply it was a 50s or 60s song, the review says the compilation quote concludes with a recent recording of eric clapton's wonderful tonight performed acapella proving the group still has it the album credits the song to eric clapton and michael Kamen. who dat michael came michael Kamen was born in 1948 making him 9 to 17 during the ebb tides first run but he is a well-known arranger and likely arranged the doo-wop cover tldr Ah. The Ebb Tides is just a cover version, but there is a small but weird and vocal community on the internet that thinks that this is one of those hoaxes. <laughs> and I absolutely could not let, I couldn't not talk about this as the hoax. The source of the controversy is a result of a recording being sold on Amazon saying, Quote, formed in the Bronx in New York 1956, the classic doo-wop group Nino and the Ebb Tides are featured here with their vintage 1957 single, Wonderful Tonight. Ugh, lies. This song was many years later a, a hit once more for Eric Clapton. Someone's just shit? lying. Yeah. Someone's <laughs> selling fake, like fake oldie, like when they d- thought that they discovered like the Lost Beatles tapes or whatever. Fun. Fun, fun, fun. Fun, fun, fun. Okay. Back to Eric and Patty. Well, a, f- a fun detour before more misery. Oh, yay. Eric is a narcissist. We're saying that or Patty's saying that? I'm saying that. Okay. But Patty says, when Eric was a kid, he always had this like imaginary horse or dog friend named Bush Branch. Bush Branch? Yeah, that was like his like imaginary friend that he would play with, right? Why? Why was it a Bush Branch? I don't know. And... So as as they're together, Eric buys Patty a racehorse. What does he name it? Bush Branch. Bush Branch. And Patty made excuses for his eccentricity. So a little after they dodged t- the Eric's taxes by living on the island, Eric and Patty are in Jamaica, and Patty starts missing George. So she calls him up to talk to him. She's with her friend Chris, but Eric enters the room when she's on the phone, so Patty hangs up immediately. 
Whoa. Yeah. That's healthy behavior for an adult. Super, right? <laughs> Patty goes on tour with Eric and like his crew again and again and again, one time via train. This is what she has to say about touring with Eric. Okay. For the most part, touring wasn't much fun for wives and girlfriends. It was such a male thing. Boys bonding, working hard, and giving a lot of themselves through their music, and then wanting to play hard. They'd laugh, drink too much, and pick up girls. Often a musician would choose a pretty girl in the audience and sing to her, and then the roadies would invite her with a few other pretty girls to come back after the gig for a drink. Musicians have so much energy when they're on stage, but afterward, they're exhausted. When they get back to the hotel though they found a second wind all those girls are throwing themselves at them oh that's what it was Mm -hmm. it definitely wasn't drugs no not considering for one moment that there may may be a wife or girlfriend in the picture if i was with him eric would tell me to go upstairs and warm up the bed to get me out of the way oh my god and i'd be so irritated but i thought i had to accept that that's what happened on tour often i would fly home and leave him to get on with it but i knew it was happening in my absence then Eric decreed that wives and girlfriends were banned from touring. Wow. Sounds like a nice guy. What a nice guy. Do you, do you want to guess why he decreed that wives and girlfriends were banned from touring? Because they take too long to get ready. I guess so. This is, this, is from, uh, this is from Patty. Quote, we used private planes most of the time, and Jamie, the drummer's wife, got on one day and started knitting. Eric flipped. Knitting didn't go with rock and roll, and he told Roger to get rid of all of us. Wow. Although I had found touring difficult, Eric's ban meant I didn't get to see him for weeks on end. Sometimes I felt that out of sight was out of mind. He didn't phone or write as George had done when he was away. While I was still with George, Eric had written passionate and compelling letters that arrived almost daily. But now that I was installed in his home and his life, he didn't bother. It was as tough as the excitement had been in the chase. And once the quarry had fallen, he no longer valued it. She sounds like ancient anxious attachment and he sounds like avoidant attachment correct i had to sit at home for up to six weeks at a time imagining what he was getting up to it wasn't easy that sounds like misery guts it gets worse (laughs) so eric cheats on patty with their neighbor jenny who was patty's friend so patty's at home i remember her talking about jenny oh she talks about jenny a fucking lot yeah because well she also has a sister named jenny so it's jenny 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 but um she so she makes friends with these twins that live next door. They're models. One of them's name is Jenny. She goes off to stay with some friends, comes back, and Eric's just like with Jenny. And he says that he's in love with Jenny, so Patty leaves. And Eric's like, good, we need a break anyway. What? She comes home, he's like, I'm in love with my neighbor, get the fuck out. And she's like, cool, see ya. Yeah, well, she no, she leaves, and he's like, good, we need a break. Okay. <laughs> So Patty has no plans to see Eric again until this happens. Quote, I stayed with Rob and Mail, a music producer, and his wife, who I had met through Eric for several weeks, wondering what to do with my life. I had no intention of going back to England and no plans to see Eric again. Then one morning, after a party on the beach, I was woken up by an agitated Rob. He walked me out onto the balcony and said, doesn't that ocean look beautiful today? I said, no, Rob, nothing looks beautiful with the kind of hangover I've got. (laughs) Undaunted, he told me that he had gotten a call from Eric in the middle of the night. Quote, he says he wants to marry you. And he 
asked me to ask you on his behalf. He wants me to be his best man. And he says that if you don't want to marry him, then on your bike, which is like, I guess, like, go fuck off. Wow. Wow. What a what a proposal. I know. So romantic. I mean, I can't think of anything I'd rather do. Clean up on aisle me. (laughs) Quote Patty. I was so hungover that his words just wafted through my befuddled head. Then he handed me the message as he recorded it on the back of an envelope. Eric wanted me to marry him on Tuesday in Tucson, Arizona, just before the start of his next American tour. It was now Friday morning. I said, what a strange message. Rob Rob replied, he wants an answer very soon. Like, I am sorry. I do not fucking understand this woman's logic. I mean... I have obviously been reading a lot about attachment styles and I'm anxious attachment too. So I understand sometimes like going back to your attachment uh, object person, even when you know they're wrong for you because you Mm -hmm. like feel like an anxious, like your body, like your nervous system is shutting down and you feel like you need to be around them, but she's separated from him. So it's like, you're already, you're already done. You're out there. Yeah. There's no fucking reason to accept this whack ass shit. She does say that this is like a an addiction for her, right? Yeah. So she says she got had a shower. She got dressed. Rob and Mayle sat down to, and they talked it out. Mayle thought I should definitely marry him because we could have such a nice wedding and a lovely party and everything. It would be fun. And Rob kind of liked the idea of being a best man. So we all decided the answer was yes. That's why I got married. Wanted to have a party. She says that she rang Eric and... Her one question was whether Jenny was still in the picture. And he said no. And she's so she like, was, I trust you. Yeah, she was like, she was thrilled. She said the drink was a problem, but other than that, he was wonderful. Oh my God, he's not. So uh, this, is, this is where she says this. On reflection, I see that being in love with him was kind of an addiction. What I didn't know until Roger confessed a few days after the wedding was how the whole thing had come about. Oh God. He and Eric had been playing an endless drunken game of pool at Roger's house, and they had a bet. I knew you were going to say it was a bet. Oh, my God. This is so sickening. Roger had bet Eric that he, could, that he, Roger, could get Eric's photograph in the newspapers the following morning. And Eric bet him 10,000 pounds that he couldn't. So Roger went straight to the telephone and told uh, uh, the gossip columnist at the Daily Mail that Eric Clapton would be marrying Patty on March 27th in Tucson, Arizona. By the time they woke up the next morning, the story plus photographs were emblazoned across the Daily Mail and the two went into a total panic. What to do? A few million people now know about the wedding. The only person who doesn't know is the bride. Hence the hasty phone call and the desperation for an immediate answer. Oh my fucking God. Like, I feel such panic right now. Like, how could you? I have like such humiliation. Like, how do you wake up after that and continue on in this life? So, Roger confessed this to her three days after the wedding. Right. Was then, so, see ya, fucking yeah. annulment. Goodbye. I would walk into Go the fuck fucking yourself. ocean. Yeah. But. Patty at Robin Mail's house says, I had three days to find a dress, have a blood test to make sure I didn't have rubella, which is what you have to do when you get married in America. Yeah. When I got married, my mom's like, did you get your blood test? I'm like, no, that's not a thing. 
that's not a thing anymore. <laughs> well, back then you had to get a test to make sure you didn't have rubella. <laughs> and she got a couple friends and family together and she got to Tucson. Gross. Roger had organized everything, the hotel, the church, the limos, the reception, and because of Eric's needle phobia, had even persuaded a different member of the band who looked like Eric to have the rubella test for him. Shut the fuck up. Oh my God, this guy's such a wanker. Quite the wanker. (laughs) But this is the second marriage that she's had that was set up by the band's manager. Also true. So Well, no, like George was like, I want to marry you, but let's ask... the logistically oh, like okay brian epstein like logistically yeah. set up the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the wedding she yeah. had to make a choice yeah. so on march 28th which was the day after the wedding they got married in a church in tucson the funny little mexican priest blah 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 um that her words not okay. <laughs> not mine I'm like let me <laughs> on march 28th 1979 the day after they got married clapton brought patty on stage and sang to her at the concert in tucson arizona guess what song he sang wonderful tonight a song that like filled her with dread it's a simple song but so beautiful and for years it tore at me i didn't know what that meant i thought it tore at her heart because she's a lunatic and she has an anxious attachment style no i think it tore at her because like she knew that I, maybe I'm maybe I'm projecting, but I think that she knew that she basically had nothing to do with this song. That it's all about Eric's relationship to like this fantasy girl. Oh, okay, okay, manic pixie dream patty. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they weren't even on tour. So she's back on tour, right? Because she's married, and and he's got to bring her up on stage and sing. So like the no girlfriends and wives on tour rule is is now lifted. Hmm. They weren't even on tour for a week before Jenny showed up. Oh, sick. Eric's mood completely flipped and he kicked Patty off the tour. (gasps) Oh, my God. But Patty was so beloved by the crew that they mutinied and Roger had Jenny ejected. (laughs) Wow. Wow. And Patty convinced herself that she was cool with Eric sleeping around on tour because whatever, the fact that it was like a one night stand, it was like, ah, he's, you know, he's at war. Um, But because the Jenny thing was like a prolonged affair, she couldn't, she was like not into it. Right. I get that. So after the tour was over, they had a wedding party and all the Beatles came, including George, but not John Lennon because John Lennon wasn't invited for some reason. For some reason. I guess they had a only one malignant narcissist at a time rule. <laughs> did you write that joke? I did. <laughs> so this is like this. This is this. This story breaks my heart a little bit. So Lonnie Donegan, the Skiffle King, which is from our Beatles episode, he sang "Gambling Man" back in the day. Not anyway. to be confused with "Ramblin' Man." Correct. Which is what you did the first time we talked about it. <laughs> So Lonnie Donegan, the Skiffle King, from one of our first episodes, shows up uninvited. And Patty knew that George was a big fan of Lonnie Donegan from the 50s. So she brought him up to where George was sitting. And George freaked out like a little schoolboy. And George is like, do you remember when I was a teenager and I knocked on your door for an autograph? And Lonnie Lonnie Donegan says, yeah, that's why I'm here. I want it back. Ha! George. So sweet. Compared to what Eric's doing at this time, it's like, George, just be with George and talk about Lonnie Donegan and fucking, it's okay. Like, go back to him. 
Patty. So the cycle continued. Eric has mistresses, drinks too much. A Spanish girl named Conchita just like shows up at their house half naked in a snowstorm, stays for two days because they can't like figure out how to get her out of there. Eric's not even there. The usual stuff. Love actually stuff. (laughs) Yeah, love actually stuff. You know, Eric's an alcoholic, but Patty's also drinking too much. And Mm -hmm. Eric writes a song about it. Oh, great. Called The Shape You're In. So this is this is the shape you're in. Another Patty Boyd inspired song. So this is like the classic narcissist thing of accusing someone of the thing you're guilty of. Yeah. Not calling the kettle black much. Yeah. This song has about double the amount of lyrics as Wonderful Tonight. Yeah, good point. He had a lot to say. Yeah. This, this song has, has just shy of 300 words in it. Oh my god. And Wonderful Tonight has 156. So just, just a little bit under double the, the number of words. Oh, now he's like, take it from me. I've been yeah. there. But but I've been there. Like, it's not a problem anymore. Right. Which is clearly I'm so untrue. above this now. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, remember when you got a 16-year-old addicted to heroin? Nope. Don't recall. <laughs> Thank you. So let's play a quick round of does slap. Kind of slaps. <laughs> 
It kind of slaps, right? <laughs> yeah. So, meanwhile, Roger is trying in vain to get him to, like, drink, not stop drinking, but drink less on tour. And when he's home, Patty is also trying to get him to drink less at home. Quote, he came to bed every night with a pint glass of brandy and lemonade at whatever time he found his way upstairs. Sometimes he would undress first, sometimes not. I used to dread the sound of his lurching footsteps on the wooden stairs, not knowing what to expect next. And when he woke in the morning, he would just finish what was left and then pour himself a fresh glass. He was drinking about two bottles of brandy per day, plus however many pints of beer he had in the pub. And she tried to tell him that he was drinking too much, but that didn't go down well. And so she started pouring his drinks for him so she could put in more lemonade than brandy. Later, she marked the bottle so she could keep a check on how much brandy had gone down. And nothing really made any difference to Eric. She even tried quitting drinking herself, thinking that he might notice and stop, but he didn't. After a couple days, she would tire of that and get really drunk with him, which he loved. And then the next day, she'd feel like shit. Then Eric also had like a handful of friends that he would drink with and he would give them like coffee laced with vodka in the morning. If he was bored and had no one to, this is Patty's quote, if he had bored, if he was bored and had no one to play with in the early morning, he would go into the kitchen, fill a saucepan with spoons and rattle it to wake everyone up. Jesus. So he, I mean, like he's an art. I don't have a psychology degree, but like he's, he's got some issues, right? He's is stunted as, as a kid, right? Yeah. Yeah. He can't be alone. He needs adoration. He needs constant stimulation, but he's obviously has depression. He's self-medicates. And the things that he does are very juvenile to get attention. Right. Yes. So, Patty says years later was he, an only chi- st- he was an only child. Yeah, because of the whole illegitimate mom situation. Well, he thought he had a well, sister. Well, he thought he had a sister. Weird. Yeah. Weird. Um, but he's the he's both the only child and the baby. Aviv, I have to tell you something about Shoshana. <laughs> She's my sister? Yes. <laughs> 35, 35 <laughs> years older than me. Yes. Um, so Patty says years later. She and Eric saw George and his new wife, Olivia, at the party. And she went up to George and said, quote, just tell me something, George. Did I make a mistake leaving? Should we have split up? And he said, no, you absolutely did the right thing. So that was so sweet of him to confirm it, is what she says. Mm-hmm. What a sweetheart. What a sweet, oh, too, too pure. I love George. So. In the early 80s, Eric keeps cheating death. He almost drowns in a drunken boating accident. He's taken to a hospital less than an hour before massive ulcers are about to rupture his pancreas. I was just thinking, pancreas. like, I couldn't believe he was still alive, like, five minutes ago when you're we talking about how much he drinks and stuff. And I was like, how is this person still alive? Yeah, there's a, there's a car crash that he actually wasn't at fault for. As he's trying to quit drinking, he gets, like, DTs at a fancy dinner and has to go back to the hospital. So on January 7th of 1982, Eric's manager, Roger, checks him into rehab. And Patty joins Al-Anon. 
So Al-Anon is for like, mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know, Al-Anon is for like family members and loved ones of alcoholics and they learn how to like not be enablers or how to kind of go forward with their lives when this, as this person is struggling through their addiction. Mm-hmm. So after rehab, Eric's new addiction became fishing. Oh my fucking God. What's wrong? Um, well, I was married to someone that was addicted to drugs and fishing. Oh. Patty refers to herself as a trout widow. So Eric leaves at like 7.30 in the morning. He isn't back until 6 at night. And he's just like with a, he's there with a shitload of fish. And he's just like, freeze this, gut this. At least he brought fish home. Yeah, I guess he could catch fish. When Eric went on tour in every city, he would stop and make sure that he fished. Yeah, I'm good. I'm over this. Okay, no more fish. He's also still a fucking narcissist. So he buys a Ferrari and his assistant drives it before he does. So his, he buys his Ferrari and his assistant drives it to the airport to like meet him with the car to like surprise him. Like, hey, here's your Ferrari that you just bought. Yeah. And Eric's like, I wasn't the first to drive it. It's ruined. You have to sell it. What a psychopath. Yeah. Someone so, drove it before your assistant. Yeah. There was a test drive. Yeah. So Eric was only sober for six months and then he fell off the wagon and a ton of anger came with that. So before he was always like very jokey drunk and now he's like an angry drunk. Great. And she began to fear, Patty began to fear that he'd kill himself or kill her. Super healthy. Yeah. So in 84, Patty decides to leave Eric again and she and Eric were in the midst of trying to have a baby through IVF. And she she thought about adopting a baby but the reason that she didn't adopt a baby is she was afraid that eric was too racist yes Lindsay. (laughs) i mean yes that is a (laughs) that is a rational thought one of the few that this woman has had but not even just racist like do you think eric would like love a kid that wasn't his no yeah absolutely not that This is her quote. At the time, I was doing some work with the National Children's Homes, and I asked about adoption. They told me at 36, I was too old. I'm turning 36 in like a week. I I couldn't believe it. So I spoke to my doctor, who confirmed it was true. I could only adopt from a third world country. Why do you have to ask your doctor if you can adopt a baby? I don't know. What is happening? This whole paragraph makes no (laughs) sense. So she says, to her credit, I would have been happy to have a child from any country. I didn't care what color, shape, or size it was, but I was frightened that Eric, in a drunken moment, might say something offensive and horrible, and I did feel like I could expose an adopted child to that risk, and so reluctantly, I decided against it. Oh my god. You mean every moment? Like, constantly, every single moment? Could not bring a child into this environment. Good on Mm -hmm. you for realizing Mm -hmm. that. Yes. But also... Take care of yourself. Put your oxygen mask on first. So she leaves him in 84. She puts her oxygen mask on first. And she starts dating this dude named Will. First. Okay. Well, she finally puts her oxygen mask on. Okay. So she starts dating Delilah's boyfriend, Will. Yeah, she starts dating Delilah's boyfriend, Will. And the cycle repeats and repeats and repeats. Eric's like calling her, trying to get her back. He shows up at her mom's house. It's like he's very skinny. She thinks he hasn't eaten since she left, blah, blah, blah. That Christmas, she goes on a holiday to Sri Lanka, and she almost dies in like a climbing accident, and she has to be hella out. And so Eric sends her 
flowers and a letter in the hospital and the letter ends quote i miss you and need you so much my love and i ask you please 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 don't take up with will again the moment you get back i think it would be the end of me please come home where you belong i promise i won't let you down again so she goes back to him patty 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 and he's a drunk again right he's not sober (laughs) shocker Um, yeah so in 84 early 85 eric calls eric called her and asked her to go to israel with him to like a resort town called a lot where they performed i had to call my dad my dad was not there my dad saw oh did i forget to respond to this yes you did Oh my God, I was driving and I was going to say warms my heart, but I was driving and then I forgot. But it really warms my heart that you f- A, fact check something, B, call your dad. I fact check all the things. <laughs> no, I know. Proceed. Um, so my dad always talks about having seen Clapton and I, you know, in the book, she like says that she went to Israel and so I was like, could it be? But it wasn't. He was already Aww. in the States. I know. Boo. Boo. But. They're, so they're driving around near the Dead Sea. Eric pulls the car over and is like, look at these. And he shows her two pills. And he's like, I got these pills from a therapist. They're called ecstasy. You want to do them? Oh, my God. This is from InStyle. What Patty called the final nail in the coffin to their marriage was Clapton's affair with an Italian TV personality named Lori Del Santo because he knocked her up in 1986. When they were together, so- he knocked her up? he yes he knocked her up so like they're on again off again and so he's like cheating on her with Lori del santo he says that he only slept with her like once or twice but he knocks her up in 1986 and the nail in the coffin was that he and boyd had been trying for a baby since they first started living together like 12 years before that and that she was still doing ivf treatment that's like such emotional trauma doing IVF, all the hormones yeah. and oh, what she's already going through with Eric. So, quote, I felt sick. I couldn't breathe properly and my heart was pounding so hard I couldn't think. So this is when she found the news. I heard myself saying it would be all right. We would still be together. I was in shock. I was 42 and I had been trying to have a baby for 21 years. And this woman had slept with my husband once or twice and was carrying his child. Oh, my God. Sick. So, parentheses, at the time, she didn't know that Clapton had successfully hidden another affair and a baby years earlier, a daughter named Ruth, who he had during, a, during an affair with his studio recording manager, Yvonne Kelly, in 84. So, she knows of one baby, but not the other baby that already is alive. And the other baby, Ruth, came out, like, right when Connor died, right? Like, yes. that news yeah, yeah, yeah. came out right together? We'll get there, yeah. Okay. So this is from the book. One evening, we were sitting on the garden wall when the phone rang. It was Eric wanting me to know that he was the proud father of a son, Connor. He was so excited. He had watched the baby being born and went on and on about how moving, how marvelous, how miraculous it had all been. His enthusiasm was unbridled. I might have been his sister or a friend, not his jilted wife. He had no thought that this might be news that I didn't want to hear. They were still married? Yes. Oh, my fucking God. Upon Clapton's pleas, Boyd decided to remain in the relationship, partly because she was going through another round of IVF treatment. Okay. This is from the book. Really, really not. You're going to love this. (laughs) 
He didn't really love her, he said, and promised he wouldn't sleep with her, just go to see Connor in Italy from time to time. And, quote, I didn't understand how it could possibly work. How could he go to Milan and play happy family and then come back to me in an empty house with no baby? However, as I was going through a second bout of IVF treatment, I agreed to try and it started and we started 1987 with renewed energy determined that our life would sort itself out oh i fondly imagined that eric's love for me and his baby would in time bring us together and that i would have a share in connor's upbringing a baby of my own would complete the picture get a therapist yeah this is just hard to listen to it's really bad. But by 1988, it was reported that the couple was done for good. In April of 88, Boyd filed for divorce. Good riddance. Well, kind of good riddance. So she says, quote, Eric bombarded me with letters and phone calls, which were occasionally abusive, but mostly beautiful, poetic and apologetic. Quote, you were cut open from head to toe, he wrote from Antigua, and I held the scalpel. I still have it in my hand and I will probably use it again. May God forgive me if I do. Will you please, Nell, stop me hurting people and forgive me? In another, he wrote, to the adorable butterfly, I can picture you in my mind's eye flitting from one green and fertile bush to another, giving the lesser insects a brief glimpse of what a truly pure and beautiful creature can look like. Think of how much pleasure you give them, how much light you cast upon their starved souls. But you need light, too, or your wings will become brittle and dry and your flying days will be over. Take some time and spread your wings in the sun and allow someone, me as the healer I have in mind, to shine on you so that your heart becomes young and vibrant again and your wings grow supple and strong and then fly and I'll meet you somewhere above all the nonsense. Oh, my God, Stop! It's almost done. And we will learn to live again as we are meant to. Holy Manjun, shit. L, Slowhand, Rick, all of me. He did not. He pulled the Manjun card. Oh, yeah. And so called himself them- Slowhand, which is his rock nickname. His gross, guitar guy nickname. Gross. Tell them what Manjun is. So Manjun is uh, from Layla and Manjun, which is the epic poem where uh, about like uh, forbidden lovers, which is where he got her nickname Layla. Right. Love crazed okay. Manjun. Love crazed Manjun. Yes. So also in 1988, well, I haven't forgotten about Wonderful Tonight. In 1988, <laughs> Clapton appeared at Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday tribute concert as a guest. What? The group. So he showed up as a guest guitarist for Dire Straits. And then the group became his backing musicians for a surprise performance of Wonderful Tonight. Oh, God. Nelson Mandela! He's tainted now forever. That's not his fault. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, Roger, Eric's manager, made the divorce a living hell for Patty. Now that Patty was, like, out of the circle, he turned on her. And... In 1999, Clapton told the New York Post, which Patty makes oblique references to like not being like, like being glad that Eric passed out before he tried to touch her or whatever. But in 1999, Eric told the New York Post, quote, there were times when I took sex with my wife by force and I thought that that was my entitlement. I had absolutely no concern for other people. So he raped her repeatedly. Yeah, he raped her. Everyone used to, this is Eric, everyone used to walk around me on eggshells. They didn't know if I was going to be happy or angry or whatever. 
when I'd come back from the pub, I could come back happy. I could come back and smash the place up. I had all the stuff, but I still wanted to die most nights. Hmm. <sighs> so let's quickly wrap up some wonderful tonight stuff, and then we'll go on to our final act of the day. This is from Son Facts. In 2000, uh, there's a Friends episode called The One with the Proposal, and Wonderful Tonight plays in the background while Chandler and Monica are dancing. A lot of people remember this. I don't, I don't remember this being on the show. Um, it also shows up in a Miami Vice episode and in the 2013 movie Captain Phillips. Is that the one where he's living in the woods with his kids? No, that's Captain Phillips. That's Captain Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> Captain Phillips is, is, look at me, look at me. I'm the captain now. I don't know that one. Yeah, where Tom Hanks is like on a on a oh yeah yeah ship. yeah. So in '97, there's a boy band called Damaged. Damaged. They're an R and B band from the UK, and they uh they recorded a cover version of Wonderful Tonight, like an R and B version. It's like a it's like a groove song. I kind of really like this version. <laughs> yeah, me and they're a boy band. They're all hot. This was on MTV. I guess. so. Oh, I wasn't allowed like to MTV. watch it. So MTV UK. Oh yeah, this would be way too salacious for you. She puts on a makeup and brushes her long brown I kind of love and then she asked me. <laughs> this is kind of good. Yeah, it's not bad. I okay. definitely like it better than the orange. Oh, hell yeah. So, okay. So, this is from biography.com. In March of 1991. Clapton's son, Connor, was playing in the New York City apartment that he shared with his mother on the morning of March 20th, 1991. Connor accidentally fell to his death from the 53rd floor residence through a window that had been accidentally left open following janitorial work in the apartment. Clapton was staying at the hotel nearby and was prepping to pick up Connor for like a father-son lunch and visit to the zoo that day. Oh, the zoo. I was thinking circus. But yeah, animals were in my brain. Yeah. So sad. Quote from Clapton. The first thing I knew was a telephone call from their apartment. I was actually getting ready to go out of the hotel room to go pick him up for lunch. Lori was on the other end of the phone and she was hysterical saying that he was dead and I couldn't let myself believe it. Clapton says he went cold and shut down right away after hearing the news and the funeral was held two days before his 46th birthday. Ugh. So Patty went to the funeral. Eric called Patty and asked her to go to the funeral. Mm. And Lori kind of wondered why she was there, forgetting perhaps that she had been married to Eric when she had the baby. Jesus Christ. Lori and Eric had split up at the time, but they, this is from the book. Quote, Lori and Eric sat in front of the church. About 100 people were there, including George, all of our friends. Soon after Connor's funeral, the phone rang in the flat. And it was Eric, and he wanted to come over and see me in a half an hour. I just want to warn you, he said. 
the press are on to me. They know about my daughter. You Did know who Patty didn't know, know about, about the daughter? The, nope. <laughs> so this is Ruth. Yeah, Ruth Clapton was born a year prior to Connor and is Clapton's only child. One with year? Bond- yeah, so she- one or two. One or two okay. years, depending on, I don't know. I can look up her exact birthday, but some people say 85, some people say 84. Okay. Because the affair was in 84. Okay. Uh, with Yvonne Kelly, which was, she was a, is a studio recording manager from Mont, Mont, Rissat, Surat, yeah, Mont, Mont, Surat, I don't know, someplace. I think France. And Yvonne made an offer to Eric to allow him to become better acquainted with his daughter, Ruth, in the Uh period following Connor's death, and he accepted. And over numerous visitations, they established a rapport, and he said, quote, it was great to be in the company of a child again, my child. He wrote that in his memoir. Ew, what a fucking prick. He's such a narcissist. Right? Yeah. And so this is still from his memoir, Looking back on those years, I realized what a profound effect she had on my well-being. Her presence in my life was absolutely vital to my recovery. In her, I had, again, found something real to be concerned about, and that was instrumental in my becoming an active human being again. Ew. Not about being a father. Nope. Just about what he's taking from his child. Cool. cool, Couldn't give a hot fuck. Cool. Um. Clapton was only three years sober when Connor died, and he says that the tragedy gave him the strength to fully commit to his sobriety instead of relapsing. And, like, honestly, t- that's to his credit, because, like, the the Clapton of 10 years earlier would have killed himself Succumbed, with yeah. Yeah. Um, and dealing with deep grief, he spent much of the months following Connor's death shuttling between England and Antigua, and he now, like, he, like, set up shop in Antigua and... um and started like a like a foundation a charity for something for recovery for for recovering addicts ah okay and clapton famously wrote tears in heaven in connor's honor Lindsay, what can we speak honestly for a moment yes you promise you won't tell anyone I have always fucking hated this song. Shocker. Well, because it's like that cloying thing, you know? It's mm-hmm. bad. It's performative grief in like a weird, uncomfortable way. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Perf- performative grief. I must be strong to carry on. Like, ew. And also, his look is just evolving into like old, dorky dad. John Colbert. Stephen Colbert. <laughs> Stephen Colbert's brother, John. And this appeared, Tears in Heaven appeared on the Unplugged album, which is what won Layla a Grammy and Jim Gordon a Grammy behind bars. So where are they now? In 1991, Patty met a property developer named Rob Weston, and they spent 25 years together, and the two got married in 2015 at a ceremony at a registry office in London in front of friends and family. And by all accounts, they're still Aww. together. I mean, she never got her dream wedding, but I'm glad no. she found a hopefully healthy relationship. 
and going into the going into the uh the judge's office or whatever justice of the peace's office is like better than whatever the fuck a, a rock and roll manager would throw right potentially yeah, maybe. In 1999, Clapton, who was 53 at the time, met a 22-year-old woman named Melia McHenry or Malia McHenry, and the two quietly began dating, and they tied the knot in 2000, and they had three children together. Gross. This is from the New York Post in 1999. Clapton said that the pressure of being a musician led to his drinking. He said that if he needed a drink to write a song, then... Perhaps being a musician was not such a great idea. So, quote, I slung that away. I got rid of that. And I thought, what am I? What am I really? And as of 99, Clapton said he's concentrating on the Crossroads Center, uh, which is a drug and alcohol treatment clinic he opened in Antigua in the Caribbean. And in 99, he sold 150 of his guitars and raised nearly $5 million for the rehab facility. Mm -hmm. 150 guitars. That's so many guitars. Why did he have that many? Exactly. Um, but he sold his 1956 Fender Stratocaster, whose name was Brownie. And that's the song he wrote Layla on. And oh. it's it sold for close to $500,000 wow. in New York. Do we know who bought it? No. Probably some charity. So that's where we would leave off if this were any other podcast. <laughs> but... These days, Eric Clapton's just an old racist. Oh, great. Actually, Clapton's always been a racist. In, an, in a Rolling Stone interview in 1968, he had this to say about Jimi Hendrix. Oh, my God. I'm going to use some word replacement here, but this is all, quote, Eric. Quote. Do we want to give him this platform? Yes. I th- well, I think that, I mean, I'm not going to agree with literally anything he fucking says in the next section, but I want people to know. What a piece of shit he is. What a piece of shit he's always been. Okay. Lay it on me. Quote, I don't really want to be critical about it. I think Jimmy can sing very well. He just puts it around that he can't sing and everyone accepts it. I think he can sing very well. I also think he's a great guitarist and I don't like to watch him too much because I prefer to listen to him. Quote, when he first came to England, you know English people have a very big thing towards a spade. They really love that magic thing, that sexual thing. They all fall for that sort of thing. Everyone and his brother in England still sort of think that spades have big dicks. And Jimmy came over and exploited that to the limit, to the fucking T. Everyone fell for it. Shit. I fell oh my for God. it. After a while, I began to suspect it. Having gotten to know him, I found out that's not where he's at, not where he's at at all. All the stuff he does on stage, when he does that, he's testing the audience. He'll do a lot of things like fool around with his tongue and play guitar behind his back and rub it up and down his crotch and he'll look at the audience. And if they're digging it, he won't like the audience. He'll keep on doing it, putting them on, play less music. If they don't dig it, then he'll play straight because he knows he has to. It's funny. Okay, so I wrote a little piece for Yoga Journal about cultural appropriative words and racist words, like phrases Mm -hmm. that you don't know are racist, and one of them was Mm -hmm. call a spade a spade. Yep, very extremely racist. Yeah, don't fucking say that. Um, But he's he's not even doing that. He's just calling Jimi Hendrix that word. Right. Um, And that's why we don't use that phrase. Yeah, quote, if you scrape away all the bullshit he carries around, you'll find a fantastically talented guy and a beautiful guitar player for his age. I just can't take it all. The plastic things. Okay. 
So right around the time you wrote Wonderful Tonight, this is this is a thing that that kind of resurfaced recently. But right around the time you wrote Wonderful Tonight, he went on a weird, probably drunken rat rant at a concert. This is an article from Ultimate Classic Rock, and it's like super well written. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read a lot of it. But this okay. is from Ultimate Classic Rock. Eric Clapton was visibly intoxicated on stage at a concert in Birmingham on August 5th, 1976. So like a month and two days before he writes wonderful tonight, but the message he spoke at the mic was clear as he advocated for his support of Enoch Powell, who was a controversial right wing British politician, well known for his anti-immigration views. Mm. The guitarist took things even further asking the audience if that, if there were any foreigners present <gasps> quote, I don't want you here in the room or in my country. <gasps> Listen to me, man. I think we should vote for Enoch Powell. Enoch's our man. I think Enoch's right. We should send them all back. Oh my God, he's a Trumper. Mm-hmm. He's the first Trumper. His words echoed much of the sentiment that Powell had espoused from his infamous 1968 Rivers of Blood speech. I'm not going to give that the light of fucking day, but he staunchly criticized mass immigration and implied that the majority of immigrants arriving in the UK were doing so, quote, with a view to... E- with a view to the exercise of actual domination first oh over fellow immigrants and then over the rest of the population of course they were so clapton was more blunt quote stop britain from becoming a black colony get the foreigners out get the wogs out get the c words out keep britain white I used to be into dope. Now I'm into racism. It's much heavier, man. Fucking wogs. Fucking Saudis taking over London. Bastard wogs. Britain is becoming overcrowded and Enoch will stop it and send them all back. The black wogs and C-words and Arabs and fucking Jamaicans and fucking don't belong here. We don't want them here. This is England. This is a white country. We don't want any black w's or c's living here we need to make clear to them they are not welcome england is for white people man we are a white country i don't want any w's living next to me with their standards this is great britain a white country what is happening to us for fuck's sake okay i'm i had enough My well that's the can't end of take it. it anymore okay yeah his comments were so inflammatory that they served to kickstart the 1976 rock against racism movement that was a campaign of carnivals and tours created in Iraq, uh, created in reaction to a rise in racist attacks on the streets of Britain. Up until Clapton's rant, the campaign was just an idea. But in the wake of his words, several of the Rock Against Racism founders moved forward with their plan, even writing a letter to NME to protest their disgust. They quote, they, "This is this is the the letter that they wrote. It's like an open letter to Eric Clapton in in, in NME." Come on, Eric, own up. Half your music is black. You're rock yeah. music's biggest colonist. We want to organize a rank and file movement against the racist poison music. We urge support for rock against racism. They concluded their open letter with a reference to Clapton's number one cover of Bob Marley's I Shot the Sheriff. I fucking Quote, hate this song. Uh, me too, especially Clapton's version. Oh my God, me too. My dad used to play it and I would be like my ripping my too. skin off. I w- as a child, I was like, Horrible. no more. <laughs> So, so this open letter said, P.S. Who shot the sheriff, Eric? Sure as hell wasn't you. <gasps> Good for them. 
Just a few months after the incident, Clapton, who at that point was struggling with intense drug and alcohol addictions, was not quick to apologize, brushing the matter off as a random and even as random and even comical to him. So this is from October of 76. He said, I thought it was quite funny, actually. I don't know much about politics. I don't even know if it would be good or bad for him to get in. This is Enoch Powell. I don't even know who the prime minister is now. I just don't know what came over me that night. It must have been something that happened in the day, but it came out in this garbled thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Definitely was so some deep-seated racism. <laughs> yeah, there's no official transcript from the concert, but this is multiple. This is that quote was kind of reconstructed from multiple sources and clapton himself has effectively confirmed that it happened and mm-hmm. decades later decades later clapton insisted that the rhetoric doesn't sound like him quote there's no way i could be racist it wouldn't make sense this is in 2004 oh my God, this is trump this is like what these people are shapeshifters he said in 2004 noting that his opinion on immigration policies hasn't changed and that enoch powell was outrageously brave (gasps) in 2018 clapton stated that while he knew his comments were offensive he wasn't racist he appeared on stage that evening quote i'm so ashamed of who i was a kind of semi-racist which doesn't make sense this was following a screening of a documentary film about his life he said half my friends were black i dated a black woman and i (gasps) championed black music oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god it gets worse quote i'm not excusing myself it was an awful thing to do but then he doubled down on an excuse he used decades earlier i think it's funny actually <gasps> okay good night you're done which brings us to 2020 famous jokester eric clapton has a new thing he loves just joking around about coronavirus i'm sorry what <laughs> <laughs> Clapton has spent mo- this is from the independent Clapton has spent most of the COVID pandemic trying to undermine medical expert advice like fellow aging, irresponsible crank Van Morrison Clapton <laughs> has opposed lockdowns. And now he's claiming his temporary adverse reaction to the vaccine is a sign that vaccines are dangerous. Scientific studies and expert opinion and public health recommendations to the contrary in his words are propaganda. He was addicted to heroin. He put anything in his body he could snort. It gets, it's not good. So uh, this is still from The Independent. Opponents of cancel culture would presumably be thrilled at the arc of Clapton's career. Indeed, the guitarist's racism and misogyny hasn't stopped him from being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame three times. Fuck that. One for Cream, one for the Yardbirds, and one for his solo career. He's also won 18 Grammys. This is heinous. But for those of us who would like to stop people dying during this pandemic, Clapton's impunity seems less awesome. Thanks to the lack of canceling, most people know Clapton as a critically acclaimed rock star rather than a one-time abusive husband and, quote, former racist. When Clapton pops up to spread public health disinformation and co-sign reactionary conspiracy theories, he does so as a beloved media darling because he's never really been made to answer for his past. He is in a position where he can do harm. People deserve a chance to change. No one is defined by their worst moments, but Clapton keeps piling up worsts with the wearisome predictability of his staid blues licks. Shots fired. The mediocre music is forgivable. Double shots fired. No, it's not. The ug- 
the ugly effort to prevent the spread of a deadly pandemic is less so. At this point, it seems uh, it seems unlikely that Clapton will ever will suffer any real financial or reputational consequences for his decades of racism, violence, and then the ignorant conspiracy mongering. But he should. So, in 2020, in in December of 2020, he made headlines for anti-lockdown, anti-vax views during the pandemic. And he said that taking the AstraZeneca jab was disastrous and complained that his hands and feet were either frozen, numb, or burning for two weeks. Clapton admits he also suffers from peripheral neuropathy, which causes the pain he describes. Jesus Christ. The UK government says that the side effects from the AstraZeneca vaccine could be mild to moderate in nature and are expected to pass after a few days. The least common side effect includes abdominal pain, dizziness, loss in appetite, enlarged lymph nodes, and excessive sweating, itchy skin, or rash. Not none of the things that he has fiery, described. Yeah. The what he described is peripheral neuropathy. Right. So he's a he's a well known COVID skeptic and he often shares anti lockdown supporters material. He quote this is his quote I've been a rebel all my life <sighs> against tyranny, against a- arrogant authority, which is what we have now. But I also crave fellowship, compassion, and love. And that I find here. I believe with these things, we can prevail. Okay. Whoever told this guy that he was a fucking poet needs to get a time machine and go take it back. (laughs) So in December of 2020, he released a single that was written by Van Morrison called Stand and Deliver. It garnered a slew of negative press. Okay. Now you've ruined Van Morrison for me. Thanks a lot. Oh, yeah. Van Morrison has become like ultra conservative in his old age, unfortunately. I like Van Morrison, too. Stand and deliver. You let him put the fear on you. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Stand and deliver. But not a word you heard was true. Is this like the Proud Boys anthem? Yeah, and this is the the thing that we're watching is hosted by something called State 51 Conspiracy, which I have to believe is just like a weird, like, QAnon sort of. Yeah. Robert says, would they play this on the radio? I'd like to request it. Right. Do you want to be a free man or do you want to be a slave? Like, how dare you ask this question, white man? What the fuck? This is just so disturbing. I don't want to be a pauper, and I don't want to be a prince. Oh, but you are a prince, Eric. You're my special little prince. I don't want to be a pauper, and I don't want to be a prince. This is also just 12-bar blues. my job. Which is stolen from black people. Right. Play, I just want to play the blues for my friends. That's what he just said. Magna oh my Carta, God. Bill of Rights. You're British. I was about to say you're not even American. <laughs> but well, Americans are the only crazy people that would buy into this bullshit. Is this a sovereign nation? Or just a police state? Oh, oh God. You better look out. He seems confused. 
about the police. Or gets too late. All right, I don't think I can take any more of this. Good, good, we're done. So we're not quite done yet. The LA Times wrote an op-ed called Clapton's Not a God, Just Another Vile Anti-Vaxxer. Mm-hmm. So for all, of the, for all of the air time we gave his racist rants, I want to read this article. He played on an, this is from the middle of the article. He played on an anti-lockdown track by fellow science denier Van Morrison. That's the track that we just listened to. Then mm-hmm. he started citing nutjobs and YouTube videos as evidence of conspiracy around the pandemic. But Clapton also chose to get vaccinated. It's almost as if he didn't want to contract a deadly disease. It's, <laughs> it is unclear whether he's just sent someone who looks like him in his place. Oh, <laughs> true. <laughs> After his second shot, he alleged that the vaccine left him with a 10-day flare-up of pain in, in his hands and feet, possibly, he implied, related to the peripheral neuropathy he already suffers from. Wow. Just wow. And is caused by alcoholism. So... Recently, Clapton announced that he wouldn't play in venues that require audiences to show proof of vaccination. Good. Clearly, old slow hand is willing to create super spreader events secure in the knowledge that the coronavirus is unlikely to infect him. Who's who's even having Eric Clapton play? Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Senator Ted Cruz. Oh, my God. Of course it was Ted Cruz. Like, why who- did they even ask? who, like Eric Clapton, is vaccinated, immediately tweeted, Bravo, Eric Clapton. Artists should defend individual liberty. Holy shit. This is the same camp that's like, people, actors and musicians should keep their mouth shut. Shut up and dribble, yeah. Vaccinated celebrity types discouraging vaccination for the masses, worse, making vaccine hesitancy seem heroic, a revolt against tyranny for art, and just as the Delta variant delivers death around the world. Nostalgia keeps Clapton, the guitar hero, from being dismissed as a public health hazard. He should have been pulled off his pedestal long ago. Nearly from the start, Clapton revealed himself as a racist, violent, and now anti-science individual, and you can't separate that from the Clapton is God package. This is not to say that everyone who likes Clapton's music shares his views. It's to say that Clapton, the delirious soloist, has always been striking the same chords as Clapton, the anti-vax preacher. There are decades of vileness that have been overlooked or rationalized. Okay, we are never doing a Clapton song again. Oh, we're doing one more. No. We're not done yet. Okay. So this is from The Guardian. This brings us to literally last week. Oh, God. So we had just finished recording our Clapton part one. Huge mistake. Eric Eric Clapton (laughs) released a new song. Oh, no. I almost sent it to you, and I'm very glad that I didn't. I was worried (laughs) that you you had stumbled upon it. No, no. I was staying out of the... This is from The Interwebs. Guardian. Okay. Eric Clapton, a staunch critic of measures designed to tackle the COVID pandemic, has released a song entitled This Has Gotta Stop. If you're talking about your life, I agree. While the song does not directly mention lockdown measures or vaccines, the musician has performed on anti-vaccine songs in recent month, months. His latest offering has been interpreted by some as an attack on the measures recommended by health officials. Quote, this is this is some of the lyrics from the song. I can't take this BS any longer. It's gone far enough. You want to claim my soul? You'll have to come and break down this door. 
other lyrics include i knew that something was going on wrong when you start laying down the law i can't move my hands i break out in sweat Mm, he doesn't sound like he's doing okay clapton has also said he will not perform at any venues that require attendees to show proof of vaccination in response to UK government announce the UK government announcement that vaccine passports will be required to access nightclubs and venues by the end of September, the musician issued a statement saying that he would not play, quote, any stage where there is a discriminated audience member present. Interesting. Interesting choice of words, buddy. Interesting choice of words, yeah. (laughs) So we're going to go out on Eric Clapton, 50 years after Layla, and his new song, This Has Got to Stop. This has got to stop. This has got to stop. Enough is enough. I can't take this BS any longer. He actually said BS. Mm-hmm. You want to claim my soul? You'll have to come and break down this door. I knew that something was going on wrong when you started laying down the law. Wow. I can't move my hands. I break out in sweat. I want to cry. Can't take it anymore. This has got to stop. Enough is enough. The comments are truly disturbing. <laughs> oh, I didn't even read the comments. Just like people supporting oh, him. God. Yeah, really. Thanks for standing up, Eric. Takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing. Mm, totally. Eric Clapton, a man of courage. So <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to make a rare recommendation. I, I, I don't do this lightly. Don't listen to Eric Clapton. He kind of blows, and he's a bad person. And his music is not good. His music isn't that good. So I I know that last week I was the person that's like, you know, you can keep, you know, a bad person can make good art. And I still believe that. But if you like Eric Clapton's music and you don't want to give him any more of your money, time, or attention, listen to The Dire Straits. The Dire Straits and Mark Knopfler's solo career provides similar sounding music, a, a better guitarist, better songwriting, and just like not racism. So please check out Mark Knopfler and the Dire Straits. Where can people <laughs> find us on the internet, Lindsay? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. You can check out our website if you'd like to support the show, lyricsforlunch.com. And if you want to send us a little uh, message about how you're feeling, to do so, please email so. us at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Leave us a rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, but Apple Podcasts is the best, helps people find us, and please get vaccinated if you haven't yet. Don't be like Eric Clapton. Well, do be like Eric Clapton, because he's vaccinated. And then stop being like Eric Clapton. Yes. And listen to us next week when we tackle another song that is hopefully not going to melt my fucking brain. I will never forgive you, Lindsay, (laughs) for making me do this, for tricking me into doing this. It was an accident. So, until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. Keep your wives close. And <laughs> your best friends closer. <laughs> this has got to stop. Enough is enough. I can't take this BS any longer. It's 
just gone far enough You wanna claim my soul You'll have to come and break down this door 